and welcome back to Jokerman Podcast, a podcast about the Velvet Underground. I am Evan. I'm Ian. And today uh, is... Today I'm a, having a cold one. Oh, you really are? You really are. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Well, uh, you know, you can tell it's like a huge deal it's like it's a festive occasion you're in for a good episode folks i just cracked the uh, tall boy modello so strap in He's drinking a beer um <laughs> that's nuts uh why though why is why is this one a cold one occasion what what is happening today well we're talking about uh the fifth quote-unquote uh <laughs> velvet under the last official velvet underground record released in 1993, uh, documenting, wouldn't you know it, the reunion of Lou Reed, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Maureen Moe Tucker as the Mighty Velvet Underground. A, an event that feels like, uh, you know, it was made for us to cover on a program like this, if ever there was an event for us to cover on a program like this. Yeah, uh, we, we were thinking for a long time that we would have one guest or another for this uh, episode, but I think it's right and proper that we actually are just doing it classic style. Because uh, to me, when we first started doing the Lou Reed and Velvet Underground stuff, I kind of had this feeling like uh, about this particular uh, record and and the video of it as being like the thing we were leading up to in many ways. Mm. One of the things. One of them. I mean, as far as the Velvet Underground goes, yes, I. I I am of the belief that this is the kind of like, in a way, the the climax of of their career, um, and the end of it uh, at the same time. Right, a brief, uh, you know, too too good, too fun for this world, too beautiful for this world, uh, for it to continue much beyond 1993, but. The fact remains that it was done, and we have some several beautiful, incredible documents. A, a double LP album that is uh, made up of a series of different performances from Three Nights in Paris, and then a, uh, a wonderful video as well that's available totally high quality for free on YouTube. I think it was officially released in 2004 or something, but just pull it up online and, and you can watch the whole thing of the four of them just doing their thing live in concert together on stage dressed all in black, very dramatic, very appropriate. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, to say nothing of the music and the whole kind of uh, performance, which we'll get into, you know, uh, for the meat of this episode, it's just, it's such a treat to see these people at this moment in time together on stage as the fuck, as the Velvet Underground. You know, it's just, it's incredible. It's a, it's a miracle. It's, it's a miracle. It's literally honestly. a miracle. And I think we talked about this with Jeff, the episode about the uh, Mo Tucker solo record. That's right. That we discussed with them where she was not really doing anything related to music. She was working at Walmart uh, mm-hmm. in the early 90s. And uh, those solo records that she started doing, I think we kind of noticed... Uh, tracked on that episode that that's kind of the genesis point for this for the simple reason that there's no getting the velvet underground back together if mo tucker is not playing the drums and 
the fact that she involved all these other people, people got involved with her to put on her own music, uh, really is the thing that made it all possible because it was just not going to happen otherwise. That's true. Yeah. I mean, she is the beating heart of the band, you know, uh, uh, both at a pun level and as like an actual reality, just like that's the God's honest truth of, of it. Um, because, because I think of who she is and, and what her life, you know, is and was, um, you know, she could kind of act as this, um, glue, this unifying force or, or something. <laughs> glue, um, yeah. you she know, could uh, stick uh, them together. That, uh, well, <laughs> there we go. But that is how it's always been with her is that, uh, she was a, a sort of, yeah, a, a magnet, a, a, a uh, adhesive, what have you, to uh, right. keep the band uh, together. Or, Egoless, you yeah. know, a, a, in a band that is defined by two extraordinary egos that are very different in, you know, uh, in many ways, and yet, you know, alike in others, um, you know, are, are two uh, main subjects of this program at the moment. Uh, you know, her her complete lack of anything like that, I think, is is essential to a for the band to have functioned the way that it did initially, right back in the the late sixties, um, and then b more importantly, perhaps for for all of this shit to even be feasible at this point, twenty what is it, twenty years or to over twenty years, you know, after they last played together, the four of them. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, because it would have been nineteen sixty seven that they all played together. I think 68 technically would have been like early 68, yeah. right. Would have been the last time that, that John was around. I think John got, got the boot like summer 68, something like that. But yeah, you know, it, uh, you know, 20, I guess 20, depending on when you, when you want to talk about the, the genesis of the velvet underground reunion taking place. Um, because technically, you know, this is a, a live record from 1993. It's uh, we, we should note it's called the velvet underground live, uh, M C M. um, X C I I I Roman Roman numerals for 1993. Very clever and crafty. Um, so that's the document. That's the tour. But uh, really, I mean, the 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 four of them coming back together as the Velvet Underground has its roots, its genesis in directly in the Drella project. Um, uh, yeah. f- for for which Lou and John performed at the Cartier Foundation something or other in 1990, actually. I think it's the Cartier New York Foundation, but it took place in France for some reason. It was an outdoor performance, which is, yes. uh, yeah, it must have just been, there is video of it and it's just like, oh my God, there, there, there yeah. they are standing there in broad daylight. Yeah. John's in his little, like, uh, you know, uh, fancy lad turn of the, turn of the 19th century, you know, uh, white slacks and, and black blazer with his, you know, uh, uh, turf bang haircut. And then Lou is just in pure, like 1990 mullet aviators leather jacket mode. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, they and look fantastic Sterling, together. Sterling looks like a supporting character in Miami Vice. He's got like a white blazer, a light blue shirt, unbuttoned, uh, the first yes. few buttons and, 
blue jeans and a, and a belt with a big old uh, gold belt buckle. Yes, an effortless, effortless swag from Sterling. And Mo is is there in the Aviators. background. She's in some sort of like purple, purple blouse and like uh, wayfarers. It looks like she's just like, and she's got like kind of her mullet, like Jerry curl almost haircut. It's oh, man, they look, they look so cool, immaculate. The, this is fantastic. I mean, the the, the looks of this era uh, of that performance and especially of the '93 one are. It's exactly what you would hope they would look like uh, in 1993. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, do you want to just keep talking about like the, the background and stuff? Because uh, we could. I mean, we should just, yeah, we, we can just sort of uh, establish, you know, so, so that was kind of the foundation of the, the, the band, you know, coming back together. That was the first performance of the four of them in, in years and years at that point. And then obviously as, you know, the Drella thing went on um, and Lou and John got a little more, not friendly necessarily, but uh, you know, used to used to being around each other in an artistic context, we could say, um, you know, the, the idea of the Velvet Underground reuniting to play shows kind of began to just bubble up in the culture. And then I think beginning in 92 or something, they, they started to um, just kind of practice the four of them together in New York. And then at, cert- at a certain point, uh, you know, they decided, all right, we're going to make a go of this and uh, and and eventually announced a European tour. Um, that was going to be the pretext to a uh, large and potentially, you know, very financially successful American tour um, that never ended up happening. But we'll get to that eventually. Um, so in any case, that's that's the stage here. 1993, they just kind of, uh, you know, put their put their egos aside such as they are and decide we're going to have a real good time together. One, two, three, four. Have a real good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna laugh the child together. Have a real good time together. Na 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 yeah that's uh our theme song right like literally right there <laughs> exactly uh that's where it starts we hear that's that right. first on the on the record on the record and i think that's exactly you know uh, i think as we talked about that song in the i think on the live 69 uh, episode we did recently that song being like the theme song of the band and that that version of the band being the doug version of the band right like 
it's it's even better to hear like you know the quote unquote real version of the Velvets do that song together yeah. at this moment. It's just like it's the perfect you know it's it's the theme song for this show. It's the theme song for these guys. It's the theme song for you know uh, rock songs in general. It's it's fantastic. It's it's like confirmed when they do by them doing it opening the show. It's just like yeah, that is the role of that song. It always has. That's been. right. So, uh, and uh, obviously absent is uh, Doug Yule. Yes. The Doug heads are seething. The Doug heads are throwing up and uh, screaming and turning red because uh, he's not there. And we apologize to all the uh, all the Doug Yule heads. Take it up with uh, Mr. Lou Reed. <laughs> And John, actually, interestingly, uh, I forget if, if it was in John's book or in the uh, uh, De Curtis Lou book. Uh, I was reading both of them before we started talking. But Sterling wanted to have Doug Yule on the sh- on the tour. Uh, he wanted it to be a five person uh, Velvet Underground reunion, inc- <coughs> reunion including. <I'm> sorry, <laughs> you, did you just literally have a spit take? <laughs> not not because of that. Um, but that's yes. Let's say yes. Uh, uh, um. John and Lou both nixed the idea of Doug Yule appearing uh, on this version of the Velvet Underground tour, which, you know, um, it could have had something to do with the fact that a fifth person would just mean a fifth split on the financials. To be quite frank, there's a fantastic uh, uh, interview of John by Jay Leno, actually, around what? this period in time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember playing the Boston Tea Party? I do, yeah. Back in, I was Scary. there. Yeah, it cost me 75 cents. Yeah. 1979, uh, no, 69. Yeah. 69, yeah. Yeah, I went down to see you guys. It's, it's very funny to me. I hear the rumors you guys may play together again, yes? Yeah, we've had a lot of good meetings about it. And uh, I guess if we can keep all the spontaneity and, and enthusiasm from those first days together, it would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So how long, was that, how long has it been? About 25. Wow. So why all of a sudden now you decide to... Money? Money. Money would be good. Yeah. I forgot that. <laughs> Leno starts talking about the Velvets uh, reuniting and claiming that he saw them at the Boston Tea Party in 1968, which seems very hard to believe, but whatever. We can let that sit. Um, he asks, you know, why now? Why, why are you doing this? And John just says the money. And he claims in his book that he was kind of joking about that, but it's a great line. And honestly, I'm sure that that was kind of part of it, right? Like this band is finally is like getting... They're famous. Way too late critical attention, exactly, and some commercial attention to go along with it. And so, like, you know, why, why not try to uh, strike while the iron's hot and uh, and make a few bucks, especially when fucking Mo Tucker is slaving away at Walmart, right? Like, John and Lou, they were doing fine, but the other two, Sterling and Mo, like, you know, God bless them for, for getting a little cash out of this. Yeah. Uh, all of the above. I mean, I, I just don't have any problem with it. even if it was if it was as simple as money. It's like I personally think artistically, like it's just fours a crowd here, like five people, one of them dug like you don't need it. It's like there's there's more than enough talent on the stage. Uh, yeah, you don't you don't need Doug, to be quite frank. And, no, and, you don't I mean, need I, him. I mean, he's just <laughs> like, you have John Cale and Lou Reed back. Anybody who says that you also should have Doug Ewell on that stage is kind of a, uh, insane. It's, that's a crazy uh, take. Yeah, it's... You only it's, have you know, Doug because there was no John. There was no John, right, exactly. I, honestly, and I'm sure it could have been cool. Um, you sure. know, this is a very... 
um, like straight ahead, like rock songs sounding incarnation of the band, right? Very guitar driven. A lot of the like kind of organ flourishes and stuff that Doug brought to the latter, you know, the latter day portion of the original run. That's not here. John is on the, on the keys, you know, on a few songs, but in general, this is a guitar and bass, you know, kind of uh, record. So Doug being present, I'm sure could have been interesting, uh, on, on some songs, but I think, you know, the simpler basic, you know, they, they know what they're doing works and they don't need to, to overcomplicate things. What I have thought about, uh, and I would love to hear, you know, what, what you think uh, about this is, uh, just, uh, the, the other potential member of this band that couldn't participate in this reunion, right? Because she was no longer with us at this time. But if, if Nico had still been around in oh, 1993, yeah. I mean, do you that... think they would have, do you think they would have brought her in for this? How should I fucking know? But I mean, I get the sense that maybe, maybe. I, I think feel like maybe. She, she, yeah. she would have had a, a better chance of being involved than, oh, than Doug would have, right? A better, uh, yeah. I mean, the Doug, I don't know why, but it's like you never meet a Doug Yule fan who's not crazy. Like when they're like. <laughs> we haven't at least. I've never met one who's like, you know, identifies as like a big Doug Yule fan who's not also literally mentally insane. Um, that's not to say anything about Doug Yule. It's just like. It has nothing to do. I mean, we, I, I'll just leave it there. It's it's a very odd <laughs> phenomenon, and I, I, I just want to put it to bed here because we're not going to talk about him anymore after this, uh, probably. Um, Season three of Jokerman, uh, d- just the Doug Ewell, uh, like home recordings. <laughs> yeah, in, enter the Doug Ewell. Um, the, one, the one, I think he put out like one live album from 2008 yeah, or something of him yeah, performing yeah, at a theater yeah, in Portland. Yeah, yeah. Like that'll be, the, <laughs> that'll be the entire run of the show. God bless him. Uh, but no, I think, yeah, well, I think know, Nico could could uh, have potentially been there. I mean, there's such a relationship between her and, and John, and she was very much, uh, I think even just the the vibe that they were trying to get to here is something really important to consider, which is a very intimate and at times uh, silly uh, environment um, this atmosphere where they actually seem Lou, especially, you know, it's notable seems like he's loosened up enough to, to be kind of jokey. And there's some, even some built in gags and spoofs and goofs in the set and in the right, way it's right. done. So like, we all know that's a very delicate, uh, situation, like Lou Reed feeling comfortable enough, especially with John Cale in the room to be like lighthearted having a good time and also together. to feel comfortable. And I mean, they, they do the total opposite too. there. It relies on the deepest connections, the deepest, strongest, and also most fragile at all the same time to be there. Um, and anything else is probably, uh, at risk of upsetting that balance, I would imagine, because what we have here, it's pretty clear to me. I think it just works absolutely perfectly as well as it could have and that's reason enough to just uh put out of one's mind the idea that it should have or could have been a different way this feels like a a rare perfect thing that reunion that doesn't wear out its welcome doesn't have a feeling of being um cheap and hollow and uh 
perfunctory. It feels like if they were going to do it, there were certain things that had to be done a certain way so that everybody yeah. felt like, so that they could really do what, what they do here, which is create that, that atmosphere. Right. Yeah. I, th- I mean, it's, 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 I think it's a best case scenario for, for something like this. John writes a little bit about this in the book, you, you know, like uh, a lot of people were British. <laughs> he, he makes a comment, actually the British music press in particular uh, was very down on this concept in, in advance of it happening. They, the Velvets were like number one on a list of bands that should never reunite that was published in like the enemy or some fucking, you know, other British rag. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and other folks were thinking like, you know, this is going to be a, an, a surefire disappointment. This is never going to live up to anyone's concept or expectations, you know, based on, you know, the legend that's been out there for, for a quarter century at this point. And, um, you know, I, I think that, um, and John himself mentions in there that he wanted to remythologize the band rather than demythologize the band, which I think is an interesting concept, but, you know, by, just reforming the band, right? It's the four of them playing a rock show and you can buy a ticket and go see it. Something that never, you know, no one ever thought was going to be possible for years and years and years. There is this demythologizing aspect, right? Like, no, it, it actually is here. Let's see what the fuss really is about instead of trying to reconstruct it through memories and fucked up tapes and stuff like that. Um, and so the desire to uh, uh, sub- subvert that and try to cultivate, you know, kind of an air of mystery and mystique and, uh, interest that is going to that would go on to kind of sustain the legend that had already sustained itself for years at this point. Um, you know, it's it's an open question. I think how successful that is. Um, they do only have one original song included on the record. Obviously, Coyote at the very end. And John wanted to. John specifically himself was interested in the band recording new material together, and apparently no one yeah. else was. Um, but um, it uh, you know all of that you know b- being taken. For what it is, uh, even though there is a demythologizing aspect here, uh, just what we get, as long as you meet it where it is, you know, uh, and and aren't expecting uh, something that, you know, is never going to be achievable. It's it's a fantastic document. Well, that's a really interesting aspect of it is that I think part of the reason why it works, it's I mean, you could think of it as demythologizing um, or demystifying, but it, it, it rather than it feeling like a band sort of uh, past a point that they are feeling the music is relevant and having to like go back and play act like it's fresh for them. It actually feels with this recording and with these songs, and especially when you watch the performance, that what's happening is, is a band that is looking up at these huge pillars of music that they created and they're trying to match that. It's the very opposite of what usually happens with a reunion, where it's like, we're going to just trot out the old Shinola. We're going to do the old razzle-dazzle for you. Sure. And it never feels the same. But this actually feels like, because it is truly th- these artists attempting to tackle things that never even crumbled a little bit in their absence. Like these songs are immortal songs. And when they approach them, it's just up to them to rise to the occasion rather than like lower themselves to mm. something stale. Sure. Yeah. The, the rest of the culture has caught up to them at this, at this time, you know, mm-hmm. like this sounds 
like uh, like perfect totally like on the button like right in the the thick of it for like the 1993 musical world i think um you know this is around the same time that like you know neil is getting involved with like grunge kind of shit obviously bob is going back to basics with his uh his his folk shit um it's uh it's an interesting kind of moment in time and i i don't know that this inter- this this reunion would have worked, would have even happened if they had attempted this, like, you know, call it 10 years before, no, like middle of the 80s, right? So. But but once you got through that awkward phase, which obviously we've <laughs> documented extensively throughout many of our subjects at this point, um, you know, you, you have this kind of like return to basics, right? Like, like um, um, uh, a reappreciation for the classical, just kind of uh, a bare bones building blocks of all this shit that emerges, you know, post 80s, you know, as the grunge era kind of, uh, takes off, and this is not a grungy treatment of this music by any means, but it um, it sounds contemporary, right? It sounds like like a a real just like rock band that could exist in 1993, even though all of these songs are 25 years old. They really do make something that feels alive, and part of that that makes that happen is that it's the earliest. It's the first version. I mean, the the essential four members doing material that comes from all around the uh, entire career of the band when some of them weren't as involved or there. Um, So there is literally new material in there to some of them um, or material that I'm sure felt less practiced. And um, the mix of that is part of what makes it so exciting. And I'm sure made it more exciting for them. Yeah, there is kind of an uncanny feeling. I think there are literally just two loaded. So I think it's just Jane and and rock and roll from Loaded. I think that's it, uh, at least included on the um, the CD set here. Um, like real good time is, together. Like Kale is not really like John. What's yeah? I think John. Name? I think I think John was because uh, Real Good Time, you know, never actually made it on a real. Ra- I think that was like an early '68 tune. Um, right. The same, you know, kind of from the same kind of time as like I Can't Stand It. Um, you know, stuff that came out on the the rarities, kind of like VU and another VU. Well, it didn't um, come from that, like their most intimate connection as artists together. You know, sure, yeah, it I'm, came as they were, you know, evolving into just a rock band as opposed to this, you know, uh, 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 world bestriding colossus you know uh straight out of the factory a um, wbc <laughs> yes <laughs> um there is kind of an uncanny element i think hearing some of these songs um that you almost think of more as lou reed songs um uh, than velvet underground songs i'm thinking specifically you know the loaded material and something like pale blue eyes for instance um hearing those songs performed by this group of people with John's presence, you know, and he's more present and less present at other moments. But um, it's an interesting, I think this is just another kind of uh, um, uh, uh, notch in the notch in the wall um, uh, around the concept of like the Velvet Underground, right? Never actually existing as like a canonized entity. Um, and, and this like this contested band that never had a fixed lineup and there were always people in and out, uh, you know, in the studio, out of the studio, yeah, on the tour, all back. on the tour. <laughs> now they're all back, but it's not even, it, now, but it's like, it's, it's other ones that are back, right? Like there's Doug Ewell songs that John Cale is now performing that like John never even had. So it's like, it's yet another kind of like, sw- <laughs> it's, we're, we're kind of like doubling back and, and switching things up once again um, uh, on this, this like ever changing amorphous kind of, you know, band of Theseus. 
uh, that uh, constantly was being fucked with. You never see all of them in the same room at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like a fr- Frank Capra movie where it's like somebody leaves and slams a door and then somebody else goes in a door. That That is just the way this band That is works. literally, had the, that is the John Cale, Doug Ewell kind of like yeah. entrance exit from the band. <laughs> yeah, directed by uh, Frank Capra. Uh, uh, I think uh, we should talk about the record, no? Yeah, well, I mean, we we started talking about the record, and I mean, honestly, I think we can bounce around on this a little bit because, like, we we talked about all of these songs nine million times. Um, but you know, there are, there are a couple you know uh, ones that are more or less interesting to talk about. We talked about real good time, obviously, to start off. Venus and Furs um, is a fantastic uh, uh, rendition here at uh, at track two. Shiny, shiny boots of leather Whiplash girl child in the dark Comes and bells you serve and don't forsake him Strike your mistress and cure his heart Not maybe my most um anticipated song to hear from them but uh it's it's just it's really great to sets the mood yeah it sets the mood exactly it's great to get a taste of this flavor and lou is lou's having fun on the vocals i would say he's shiny shiny puts a leather yeah scatting and bebopping (laughs) just fucking around up there which is good to see you know that he's able to able to be loose and kind of have fun with it um because so much of this Reunion was a very fractious uh, a period of time. Certainly, to hear John tell it, he 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 writes in the book that he sent Lou a nine-page fax what? at the end of this uh, that was just hit like a screed of like him just dressing him down, and that Lou never talked to him again after that. Um, what, what is he saying that, in it? I who knows? <laughs> uh, questionable choices with when he was singing, uh, so, for example, on. On uh, on Venus and Furs, I I I think that there's a lot. It left a lot to be desired. Uh, I talked to people uh, who uh, were disappointed personally. I don't want to say name any names. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I I think that is like maybe part of part of what it was. Get to hear John tell it. This is only one side of the story. Um, but you know, uh, Lou was a very kind of demanding taskmaster of everyone in the group at this moment in time, and very hands-on involved and telling like Sterling, you're going to play this solo. You're going to sound like this on this song. You're going to play bass on these other songs. Mo, this is the drum setup you're going to have. This is how they're going to sound. John, you're going to play this instrument, then that instrument. You're going to sing on this song and that song, and that's about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a degree of that, that, of that, that is true. Uh, and I'm sure there's a degree of that that isn't, but, uh, I do think that that was, that was definitely part of the story of, uh, of what happened at this moment in time and why it was just this fleeting little glimpse that honestly, for the historical record for the long run, like might've been the best way that this could yeah, have probably. possibly worked out. But, um, you know, uh, just in terms of sheer volume of material or shows, you know, there, there was more, more there on the table. Well, well um, that's amazing if it is true, because I think that the way it's uh, presented and the sort of art direction uh, loosely of the whole thing is 
really sophisticated and and dignified and it it feels like very tastefully executed um the cover is kind of dog shit oh i i mean i'm i'm not talking about necessarily the visual art direction although that is what other art direction i mean just i mean of the performance i mean like the the fact that it doesn't have like a lot of there you know there's no show going on there's no like there's no live uh show effects there's nothing like right there's that. no it's videos there's no crazy lights absolutely or anything zero. Yet. it's just the four of them in black on stage playing rock songs and it's who sings what and it's what songs they pick and it's how they sound which none of it betrays the um the essence of of what they're going for what you'd hope sure. they'd go for so uh if it is just Lou, I mean, I, I'm impressed, and it's actually kind of like, wow, he's made some choices that show a lot of restraint, and um, I think ultimately a very deep care for how this would go down should it happen. Um, I'm sure that John Cale was also quite involved, and just probably didn't feel as involved as he wanted to be. the The set list is just great uh, on this release. Uh, yeah. Guess I'm falling in love being the third song. Oh. Well, I got my fever in my pocket, David, down in my shoe. I guess that I'm falling in love. I got a nickel and a dime and a quarter, baby, down in my shoe. I guess that I'm falling in love. Nickel down and a quarter Baby down to my shoe Nickel and a quarter Don't you know it Be alright Be alright yeah, and the fact that it's a vo- like a, a lyrics version of "Guess I'm Falling in Love," like Lou's Lou's got a whole you know spiel on this one. Just a gift to hardcore fans. Yeah. It's it's sort of similar to, you know, like uh, not even sort of similar, you know, more like setting the template for, I should say, but like the pavement reunion from last year for or this year, like versus their 2010 reunion, which was much more like play the hits, you know, cater to the stuff the fans uh, might expect, or, you know, the, the people who might be casually familiar with pavement, what they might expect. The, the more recent incarnation of their tour is very much like mine, the B-sides and the depths and the fucking wowie zowie. Uh, deep dark uh, uh, pits as much as possible for you know stuff that the heads are really going to be excited for the vel- that that's what this is like the velvet's really you know kind of artfully curated a selection of songs from the records from the first two records first three records mostly um, but also cutting room floor stuff um, and, and uh, other tracks that uh, never saw the light of day in their original incarnation. It's uh, it's a perfect mix. I think like if you're drafting a fantasy mm-hmm. Velvet Underground reunion set list, like it would probably look exactly like this. This is all in France, right? This recording. Yeah, these three. Yeah, the the, the uh, performance or this set is taken from cuts from three nights in Paris, mostly the second night, which John claims was the night they really nailed it and locked in on. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, some are from the first, second and third night of, of that stand. Uh, after hours is uh, on there, which is mm. just, yeah, I would have been like crying. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> when, when Mo comes up and it's the plunky piano, John playing piano and Mo singing after hours. Come on. It's as good as it gets. Come on. One, two, 
And and Sterling and Luplin, like, come on. Yeah. It's it's amazing how easily conjured the pure original essence of where they were years and years before, just like just like that. It's like, you know, the, like riding a fucking bike. They just they could lock into this immediately. Like somehow it's it doesn't even sound the same. It just is the same. You can feel the love in the room. Uh, you know, that they always say that about certain performances and it's usually like just you know it's like a trite thing to say but it's so palpable in this recording that you can you can hear everybody smiling i mean it's uh it's exactly what you would want uh it's this is like best case scenario here all the people are dancing they're having such fun i wish it could happen to me But if you close the door, I'd never have to see the day again. I'd never have to see the day again. I'd never have to see the day again. This episode of Jokerman Podcast is presented by DistroKid. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your Tidal's, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy. With unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. Then All Tomorrow's Parties. This one's a highlight for me. This record, this yeah. version fucking rocks. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, love, I love the decision to have John take all of the Nico songs mm-hmm. um, on here, which... You know, they have different voices, obviously, but there is this kind of stentorian harshness that John affects. Nice you know, he, he can obviously be very, thank you. Uh, uh, he can also be very, you know, melodic and and uh, and and beautiful, but he kind of leans into, you know, the, the presence that Nico brought to these songs initially um, in his own way. When, when they decide, all right, we want to go there, um, they can they can do it and you know this is a great example of that 
I'll be your mirror. Mm. And and the other, uh, just a little bit of uh, Jokerman lore here, the other early candidate for a theme song of Jokerman Series 2, and one that I still think would have been beautiful uh, and, and very appropriate. That would have been great, um, having I'll Be Your Mirror as the intro. Uh, however, I was just really afraid of getting sick of hearing it. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, that's fair. And honestly, like we didn't even know at the beginning of all of this that I love rock songs was going to become the defining ethos of the show. Uh, so that One that them. taking off very quickly, uh, thanks to thanks to Michael, um, uh, dovetails very nicely with we're going to have a real good time together. But that all said, I'll be your mirror is such a, a potent, um, you know, kind of. Uh, well, it's it's uh, fucking John Cale and it's John and Lou singing "I'll Be Your yeah, Mirror." Duetting together. at the end, and the, you know, kind of the 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 undercurrents, all of the loaded kind of like what, years of emotion and strife and and love and um, uh, just you know uh, a pathos that's loaded in the two of them singing the song together. "I'll Be Your Mirror," you know, to each other. Um, With each it's other. such a it's a magical kind of moment. Uh, that this might be my favorite uh, on this on this entire set. You know, it's it, it gets you know it's it's very brief, it's just like three minutes long. But you know, they get to that moment towards the end when it kind of picks up and starts kind of skipping along on that beautiful little guitar line, and it's like, oh, and and the audience gets into it right. They're kind of clapping. Moe's hitting the bass drum. Man, that is just like that's magic. That that is fucking pure magic right there. <laughs> should clarify this is Lou taking a Nico song. So John didn't take all the Nico songs, but John is present on this Nico song. Um, yeah, and, well, uh, this is a, a very Lou song. Um, this is a personal Lou, a very personal Lou song. Uh, not to say the others aren't, are. but, um, you know, this is I'll the... I'll be your mirror, babe. I'll be your mirror, baby. Oh, that's so good. Uh, yeah, that's and so that good. little... Uh, sort of double time that faster sort of variation that they play at the end um is uh would would have been a, a thrill to see cuz they do some original arrangements of these songs they throw in some curveballs and just the way yeah, that they absolutely. execute them but, you know a lot of it is you know kind of by the book straight straight and narrow but 
certainly not all of it. And, you know, they, they definitely give the head again, the heads, you know, the opportunity to like enjoy the way that some of these songs are conjured back into existence in this weird new world that they're living in circa 1993. Uh, they've got beginning to see the light, the gift, the gift. They just do the The gift. gift. The gift is such, that's like such a, like, that's it. Like them doing the gift. Yeah. 10 minutes, 33 seconds. Exactly. It's like the longest, it might be, no, I guess Mr. Rain is the longest song on the record, but other than that, it's the gift. It like, you see the gift on this fucking set list. Well, that's another thing. They do. Hey, Mr. Rain. Yeah. A 15 minute version of it. The thing oh, that, like, man. we were just saying, like, when we first were covering that song, that, oh, like, wow, like, w- this would have been so cool to the, the, <laughs> see. And uh, it it is. It turns out it is very cool when they do Yeah, it. they really, they really, I mean, we'll, we'll, we can get there in a minute, but they really, you know, kind of, kind of dig into it on, on Mr. Ray. John, John says in the book, I think at one point, like, he remembered getting like 10 minutes into the song and realizing like, Oh, we're still doing that. And we're only 10 minutes in. There's still more to go, but we've been 10 minutes into this song and we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it rolling. Uh, yeah. says the guy who did like, the 27 hour concert or whatever. Well, you know, yeah. this is, listen, this is family, man. This is, uh, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. Uh, hanging out, uh, at home, clean Mr. Squash, John Cale in, in 1993. He's, uh, he didn't, he doesn't have the, amphetamine fuel to uh uh sustain something like that so this is takes takes a lot of effort uh the version of femme fatale is so so good this is oh. just gonna be us saying everything is so good i'm sorry but yeah it, i mean it it is so good yeah it's it's interesting actually i like i i watching the video you know the movie or whatever um elucidates things a little bit because you, you get to see who's playing what on some of these songs. And I, I forget actually who's, who's doing guitar work on, uh, on Femme Fatale, but Sterling is on the bass for a lot of this uh, performance, which is like kind of shocking to me and might speak a little bit to Lou's desire to, you know, sort of uh, control things here and, and make himself, uh, you know, as central as he can. But like, Getting getting one of the great guitarists, just you know, one of the great lead guitarists, one of the great soloing guitarists in the history of rock and roll music, Sterling Morrison, and just like having him play Velvet Underground songs on the bass is like almost like you know, that's it's 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 crazy. I guess we are doing the thing that if Abraham, uh, our hater, was here, he would be like, I can't. I was like, you fucking idiot. You, you thought that that was Sterling Morrison? How? Uh, I don't. I don't even know. I, listen, I don't even remember if it was Sterling Morrison. <laughs> on that note, just uh, on uh, talking about art direction again uh, and stuff you can pick up on the the video and them on the guitars. Lou's fucking guitar. Head, I guess Lou. Yeah, Lou and Sterling were both playing headless guitars. They, those are so sick. I yeah, love cool. that shit. Those they're are like the, cool. the most badass guitars I've ever. Seen. I don't even know what brand they are. And that is such a like that feels very nineteen ninety three. It feels very nineteen ninety three. It feels very Lou Reed to me. Also, Lou being this yeah. guy who's interested in the cutting edge, you know, and and the latest technology and whatever. And this whole project being the very opposite of that, right? Him, you know, kind of uh, 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 retreating into the past and and conjuring this, you know, kind of nostalgic um, uh, uh, recollection to an extent, but doing it with this like <laughs> space age nineteen ninety three cutting edge equipment. It's so cool. Stand on the corner 
a suitcase in my hand Jack's in his corset, jeans and a vest Me, I'm in a rock and roll band Riding a suspect jam Goes to a different time All the poets study who's a bird The ladies roll their eyes CJ But Mr. Rain, really, I, I, I mean, I think that might be kind of the centerpiece of the entire thing for me. That's the first song on disc two of this. It's right here in the middle. And if you watch the video, um, it uh, takes place, uh, you know, like, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes in or something like that. And again, like we talked about earlier, 15 something fucking minutes long, wild. And and the video, if you see the video, it, Lou and John kind of like come together yeah it's the the last song they worked on together and it's when they never played live together as far as i know yeah it's 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 you know like i think like we talked about initially it's this like fascinating glimpse of like what could have been you know this this road not taken for the third velvet underground album featuring john kale this kind of like refined version of sister ray in a sense yeah but the live performance here they, you know, for most of the, the show, they're they're all kind of like Lou, Sterling, John are like spread out, you know, one third, one third, one third across the stage equally. But here, Sterling's off on the side and Lou and John just like walk up to each other and John is wailing away on the fucking viola and Lou has got his headless guitar right there and they're really locked in and like they're making faces at each other, you know, honestly kind of similar to, to, the, to the Drella movie in a way. And this is like, like, this is almost like the flip side to Drella to me, like the the same kind of level of interaction and emotional intimacy between these two. You only get hints of that on Songs for Drella, which we remarked on whenever that happens, like on images. Um, And this is like the actual thing. Like this is, yeah, with drums. It's, it doesn't get better than that. Like this is, this is as close as we're going to get, except for the very tantalizing final song. Uh, an idea of like what the Velvet Underground is if they just kept going making original new music. Right. This is the newest thing uh, besides the actually new thing at the end. Um, And it does not disappoint. I mean, to, for for my money, this is like the the defining artistic collaboration between Lou Reed and John Cale. Like perhaps like this version of this song in 1993, these two coming together after years and years of weird movements in so, in solo careers and successes and failures and and recriminations and regrets and shit like that, and still the two of them can come together on stage and just fucking 
do this together and engage in this wild flight of rock music and classical music and avant-garde music. It's just like such a satisfying coda on this journey that we've been on with these two over the last year uh, at this point. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's touching to me. I feel verklempt. Hey, Mr. Rain, won't you calm me down? Mr. Rain, won't you go farm me down? I think gonna be most so long staring up at the sky. Mr. Rain, won't you go farm me down? And we didn't even talk about the nursery rhyme. Yeah, we got to get nursery rhyme. The Velvet Nursery Rhyme. The one one of two original Velvet Underground songs contained on this recording. I don't really think we can really describe it. Uh, it's, uh, it, is, it is this. Underground and we have come to play It's been 28 years since we've been here to the day There's Maureen, she's on the drum She's having a lot of fun Let's hear it for Mo Tucker Beat those skins for everyone There is Sterling Morrison, he's playing the guitar. He's a guitar hero, kick their asses really far. Now you got here, John and me. And now you got here, John and me. We want no part of this. That's because we think it is real pretentious shit. So that's just wonderful. It's pure. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> real pretentious shit. Yeah, that's really. I, I have nothing to say. It's just. <laughs> it's it's very sweet. There's I'm sticking with you. Obviously wonderful. Uh, Black Angels death song. Rock and roll. These are all. They're all great. But I think that. Yeah, I mean, what I really do want to talk about is like. I'm waiting for the man into the last track. Those last four. That's that's where things really just they got the cute stuff out of the way. They got the rock and roll numbers out of the way. Um and they were very fun and it was all great while they were doing it. But the real test is kind of like, can they do the peak emotional high points or low points. Uh, the real uh, heavy hitters. Can they pull those off 
because obviously they can rock and obviously they can be fun. Uh, but can they do these songs? Let me ask you before we talk about, is there, are there, are there songs they didn't play that you wish they would have played? Um, I think it's a, a credit to this collection that if there are, I, I didn't think of any. Like while I'm while I'm looking at this, I'm not like feeling like there's anything particularly missing. I don't feel shortchanged by any means. I do. I, like I would be fascinated to hear Sunday morning. Yeah, and yeah. And like that would have been, I, I think, like almost as a show closer. Like at the very end, if they decided they wanted to do that, that could have worked incredibly. And then. Um, uh, uh, Here she comes now. I think would have also been that one, maybe a little less so. It would have been a really nice, you know, kind of nugget somewhere there in the middle. And then obviously, like, I mean, the easy answer is Sister Ray, right? But I feel like Mr. Ray, like Mr. Ray, like not, is better. They're not playing Sister Ray on purpose, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So and, it's a better and choice. by not doing that, exactly, and and doing Mr. Ray instead, that's a very conscious decision. It's active for them. That piece, whatever that would be, is the point that's like really. Uh, vital and like live wire dangerous and it it it's not as dangerous when that's a song that they've covered you know lose covered on his own like it's it's a much more interesting and and i'm really glad that they they, cho- they chose to do um Mr. Rain. Yeah, if you can only have one, I think Mr. Rain is absolutely the right one to do it. It gives you more of a, like, two great tastes, you know, taste great together type of thing between the two. Like, it's a much more John-focused, John-centric kind of song than Sister Ray, which is fucking incredible, obviously, but does often just turn into face-melting rock and roll freakout. You can't tell who's who. Um, Exactly, yeah. Anyways, I'm waiting I'm for the man. I'm with you. I, I'm waiting for the man. <laughs> white light, white heat. We, I mean, they're all, the all the stars are here. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the second disc, uh, you know, you run through the middle here after Nursery Rhyme. White light, white heat. Very classic, straightforward rock song version of, of this tune. One of the velvet, one of the old chestnuts, you know, one of the old, the old standards in the catalog. You always love to hear white light, white heat, I think. I do. Yes. Now working. Oh, she's so well funky. Watch us be free, watch us be free. Go to shoot up every night of the week. Oh, whoa, spotted mother. Everybody wants to kill their mother. Watch that side, watch that side. Don't you know we're going to be dead and fly. Uh, I'm waiting for the man is John's uh, last opportunity uh, at least on this version of this set to take a lead vocally and interestingly I've been kind of browsing some of the set lists on on Setless FM it looks like this was typically like the penultimate track right like the second to last song and a lot of these you know the, this track list here of these songs this was not how the concert itself actually took place uh, many of them were actually quite a bit shorter than this um, but, uh, waiting for the man, a, a strong kind of choice as a final highlight for John. And I think credit to the idea that this is really a John song. The archival release that we got from Line the Attic last year, I think did a great job of really kind of exploring initially from Lou and John working together in 1965 with that call and response, almost busking type performance there. 
this is uh, this is John's opportunity to really lay claim to a a just towering titan of the, the Velvet Underground catalog, and he chooses to play it pretty straight. Actually, obviously, we've talked about all of the whacked out, fucked up, sicko versions of this song that he has done throughout the years when he just goes full abject mode and screams and howls and pisses himself on stage performing. This is not, this is not that. This is a pretty straight chugging, you know, rocking version, but it, um, it, it, it's more, I, I would say it's more kind of true to the original just recorded version of this song than I might have expected it to be. Yeah, you get some of both with this to its benefit. It actually feels like you get aspects of all of them at their best. give each other room to be showcasing their like individual techniques and approaches. Yeah. I mean, you really do get a great sense for what everyone's bringing to this band at this point on this particular interpretation between that, that insistent pounding nerve wracking piano that, that takes you through most of this to the beautiful backing drums, courtesy of Mo Tucker on that note it's like the the biggest showcase moment has got to be mo on the drums on heroin Mm. it's it's i think it's my favorite this is one of my favorite live performances of a song like this is i think just an an amazing performance this is magic the the way that she plays is not just about force though it's it's actually her sensitivity to atmosphere 
like every one of those little double hits, those boom booms that she hits. She's actually listening to the lyrics and she's playing to the lyrics. They're all playing to the lyrics. I think that's something about the whole performance is it feels like the way they're playing is appropriate for each song. It's not it's not the other way around. It is really them approaching these songs that are bigger than they are and having to like climb on each other's shoulders to be as tall as the song and then they can do it that way. I don't know just where I'm going but I'm going to try For the kingdom if I can Cause it makes me feel like I'm a man I don't think that any of the individual members, as great as their versions are of these songs, um, none of them have done a version of heroin that is like this on their own. I would almost say that the Mo version of heroin is the closest. Her own, yeah, is is maybe the most rewarding version of this song cover wise. You know, yeah. outside, yeah, outside of actual Velvet Underground interpretations, and I think that might be a large part of the reason why she is so effective and essential, like central to the performance of this song, particularly at this moment in time, because she knows, she knows it. it inside and out. She, yeah, exactly. she knows she every fucking part it. of the song. It's, she sings it. She plays the rhythm. She plays the drum. She plays the bit like she's the, the entire thing. She knows just as well as anyone else. She knows it's important too. She knows it's like a, a really important song. And that's really what I think everybody who was worried about such a thing about this that's what they're we're worried about is like these songs are so important to me. I am I would not want to see the band right. Are they not going to take it seriously? Yeah. Is this, is this really just a cash in? Are they just going to get up there and you know play a ten song set and and walk off stage and cash a big check? And that's not at all what's going on. Like your mileage may vary as to how much you like this version of the band, but one thing you can't say is that they didn't live in these songs and put everything they could in the year of 1993 when they're all 50-something fucking years old. Sterling Morrison's two years away from dying, and they are up here giving it every fucking ounce of their humanity. I was born a thousand years ago I wish that I wish that 
I'd sail the Georgian seas in a great big commercial. Going from this land here to that. Some parts of this where what he's playing on the guitar sounds in the gentler moments like the guitar part in I'll Be Your Mirror. And I kind of doubt that that was intentional, um, but it just seems kind of perfect that the song that has all this desperation is uh, seems to be kind of linked to that other song, which is so much about healing and it's all coming from the same man. It's like the narrator of I'll be your mirror would sing that song to the narrator of heroin. It gets as gentle as they go. And also by the end of the song, it, the sheer force that they reach the momentum they get is unbelievable. Yes. Yeah you know, thinking about the fact that it's just these four people doing all of this, you know, at, at the end of it, it's, 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 it feels so huge. There's this extraordinary, like whining drone that comes on towards the end of it. And Moe's drums are overwhelming. And Lou is just talking a mile a minute lyrically. It's, it's, and it's just the four of them. Heroin. Heroin Be the death of me Heroin Heroin it's my wife and it's my life Cause a meaner to my vein Leads to a center in my head And I'm better off than dead
everybody putting everybody else down And all the politicians making crazy sound And all the dead bodies piled up in hell And he's screaming at the end. Yeah, he's he's Lou's doing the John the John yeah. shit here at the end. It's it makes me this makes me like just awestruck every time. I, this is yeah maybe the best testament to the power of these four together. As much as Mr. Rain is is a Lou and John duet dance, you know, love uh, affair between two people that love and hate each other in equal measure. Yeah. And it closes on well, pale blue one of the eyes. goodest songs <laughs> in the catalog, exactly. Pale Blue Eyes, which is uh, one of the, like we talked about earlier, one of the non-John songs that is brought out here, you know, at least for thinking about, you know, studio on the record incarnation. Obviously, this is the crux, you know, the the core of the third record and the way I think the way that John can kind of come in here on the viola and lend this song such a quality of dignity never been photographed uh is it feels so true to the original and there's this new there's this new dimension to it that has has been latent perhaps you know for years at this point and was always there all, all along. And it's just this beautiful, simple, austere. He's not doing any sort of, you know, fireworks. He's absolutely letting Lou take the lead and obviously sing the song and, you know, really invest himself here. This, again, is, is another just striking emotional peak, I think, on this record, hearing what the four of these people together, and specifically these two, Lou and John, are able to do on a song like this. Um, it's... 
Come on. Come on. I mean, it's pale blue eyes. What, what is there to say? <laughs> if I could wake, the world is pure. And strange is what I see. I put you in the mirror that I put in front of me. That I put in front of me. Don't you linger, linger on and on and on and on and on you To me, it doesn't get any better. I mean, it, it's so much, so true to, like, the whole idea of the our program. It's just that, like, it's only worth doing something again if you do it in a way that feels like it's moving forward in time. This is not like nostalgia poison. Right. Well, and that's the thing, right? It's like, to me, is, you talk about demythologizing, remythologizing, band should not reunite and it's never going to live up to the legend or whatever. Like, this is now 30 years old, right? This is the, we could call this the 30th anniversary of the Velvet Underground Live 1993. Yeah. Um, wow. And it's the, yeah, it's the thir- it's 30 years old. And these songs were 30 years old, 30 years old at the time, almost. It, it's, um, I mean, we, we take this shit for granted, right? Because we talk about someone like Bob so much who has been doing this endlessly for, you know, close to a fucking, it feels like a hundred years at this point. But uh, this is, uh, this is just not to be underestimated that, that it's, it's not something that I think anyone could have expected to ever happen, A, and B, to happen as well and effectively and emotionally satisfyingly as it did in uh, in this moment. It was good what we did yesterday, and I'd gladly do it again. That's right. And the fact that you're married only goes to show that you're my best friend. But it's truly, truly a sin. Coyote is the last song. The final song by the Velvet Underground. I, I love it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's, it feels... It's atypical. Exactly. It feels... But like lyrically, like why is it about like a coyote? A coyote? It's like the not what you... It's just so not like a, a Velvet well, Underground and that's, See, and that's what I love about it, right? Lonesome Cowboy Bill isn't either, but like to have them be these four doing a song that... And, but title. it's not even, it, you know, Lonesome Cowboy, you know, kind of a knowing wink at the camera kind of quality to it. This it, is earnest. This is, this yeah. is earnest. Exactly. And that's what I love about it is that it doesn't 
it doesn't sound like a Velvet Underground song, right? If you if you had imagined, if you had just, it, it, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't in in that it it's not what you would expect, like a a stand. Like if you had it sounds just, like a new one. It just sounds right. Like a if new you had, song. had someone say, you know, uh, imagine a Velvet Underground song written in 1993, uh, and it's the the original lineup. It's part of this reunion, right? You'd imagine like, uh, they're gonna write a song about you know fucking you know people on the streets or doing drugs or you know some someone that you you used to love or something and instead it's the one the one that we get coyote is this you know pretty quiet and simple and yet like oddly metaphorical kind of song like at this moment in time this is a lou and john co-composition lou sings it they are totally willing to move in this new unexpected direction there's something about the uh, animal focus of it that feels um yeah like highly metaphorical or symbolic really is the word and um that feels like a new a new sort of strain of velvet underground music writing um hey mr rain kind of has some of that too this weirdly abstract or symbolic seemingly uh lyricism that they bring everything they've always done well to, and then it feels really new. I, I think it's a fantastic way to end in the show or in the set. And actually, I was looking at the Paris sets. It actually does look like this track list follows pretty closely the, the set list they played each of those nights, um, Coyote being the, the end of those shows. Another proof, bit of proof, that what they were after here was more than you could have expected or would have ever even expected because they were willing to come together, make a bit, make, you know, put on a lengthy long fucking show that sounds this good. And at the same time, even as the band is already beginning to fail once again, and you know, this tour is going to collapse after six weeks and the long, you know, rumored American tour never ends up getting off the ground. They were supposed to do an MTV unplugged record too. Mm-hmm. Then, Man, that would have been incredible, but obviously it didn't happen. Even as all of that's happening, they are still willing to commit themselves to something new. Yeah, that we should end with the new song. Like, there's a hopefulness here. Yeah, hopefulness. And that had to be there from the beginning for this to happen in the first place. You get the feeling listening to this that none of them had decided to stop yet. And... There's even the idea that maybe we'll just keep going forever. Joker. Joker. Coyote on top of the hill. Ooh, doing the things that coyotes will. Staring at the sky, looks at the moon, he starts to howl. Top. Blood in his jaws, the bone he drops. Says no tame dog is ever, ever gonna take this bone. Coyote up on a mountain top. Says what a 
drop You gotta cast the first stone Cast the first stone Cast the first stone You gotta cast the first stone